Welcome back to the True Sports Physical Therapy Podcast, a show that's by sports PTs and for sports PT professionals. We're here to accelerate growth in your sports PT career while giving you the tools to provide your athletes with game-changing results. Here's your host, sports physical therapist and practice owner, Dr. Yoni Rosenblatt. I love doing podcasts on topics that I feel are so poorly covered in the sports rehab setting and core muscle injuries and how to rehab them and how to diagnose them is certainly one of them. Zach Giuliano works in Mincera Institute, which is the mecca of core muscle injury repairs and rehabilitation. He's going to tell us everything we need to know, uh, how to rehab these athletes, get them all the way back on the field, and of course, highlight some of the mistakes he has seen. PTs make and then what he absolutely needs to see um, in the rehab process to get these athletes back quicker, faster, and stronger. So great conversation with Zach today. I learned a ton. So if you have any questions on this topic, make sure you give this a thorough listen. Do me a favor, share this content uh, because I think it'll do the field really well. Of course, it'll also help out the True Sports Physical Therapy Podcast. I'm really thankful that you're tuning in to this conversation. Let me know how we're doing. As always, shoot me a DM, True Sports PT on Instagram, or send me an email, Yoni, Y-O-N-I, at truesportspt.com. I want to hear from you, and I want you to share this pod with whoever you think would benefit from it. Thanks for tuning in. Without further ado, Dr. Zach Giuliano. Welcome back to the True Sports Physical Therapy Podcast. We got Zach Giuliano with us from the Vincera Institute. And you're going to teach us all about, Zach, you're going to teach us about core muscle injuries, what we should be calling them, what we shouldn't be calling them. Uh, We're really excited to have you here because God knows I got a lot to learn around this world. And maybe that means other PTs. Uh, need to learn it as well. So um, without further ado, Zach, tell us about how you got to where you are. Yeah, yeah, no problem. Uh, first and foremost, pleasure to be here. Happy to uh, collaborate with you, your other PTs, and just your company in general. I mean, you guys got a, a great model, uh, real drive for good sports PT, which I think our profession is lacking. So okay. it's nice to link up with people that I think see the value in physical therapy that we see. So, yeah. Anyway, um, geez undergraduate degree from millersville in biology Hell yeah! not really clear about what i wanted to do afterwards actually took a shot at physical therapy assistant school uh went through that about halfway through said i think i gotta be a pt nice <laughs> uh you know just worked alongside other pts and my clinical affiliations and just felt like i could be that you know i could i could go back i could do that mm-hmm. so finished up my pta uh, degree went back full-time on weekends at Newman University. So I got my PT degree there while working full-time as a PTA. Got uh, got lucky enough to get a clinical here at Vincera Institute in my uh, three-month rotation and fell in love with what they do, how they do it, people they see, PTs I worked with. Uh, fortunate, unfortunately, graduated in the COVID time. Right. Uh, not many jobs flying around during that. I was fortunate enough to get a full-time job at Mainline Health where I worked as a PTA did a bunch of traveling for them in their hospital systems, outpatient settings. Um, they had a contract with St. Joe's University. So I worked a lot down there helping out as a, as a PT with the athletic program. And then fortunately found my way kind of back through a little bit of a backwards connection. I was working for a sports performance company out in the Downingtown area and linked up with a gang of Vincera to get dry needling certified. Turned out they had an opening. I interviewed and boom, Bam. right back. So okay, back so... here, back here in October. So I've been back here now for what's that? Close to a year, ten okay. months. Awesome. And you know, it, it's nice to to link up on the pod. I've heard just awesome stuff about your style, um, and that's kind of. Yeah, and I obviously, Vincera Institute is, is known for this core muscle injury world, and so uh, excited to have you on to to kind of talk a little bit about that. Now, what I didn't know about you is this high level of, for lack of a better term, grind. I mean, you yeah. go in, you're like, oh, I'll probably be a PTA. And then you're like, screw that. I could do this. And then, <laughs> you know, you kind of make your own way. Where does that grind come from? I don't know. Yeah. I want to say my parents, my dad's a real hard worker, uh, self-made company of his own. 
construction worker. My mom, same thing. Um, I'm one of four, so I got three brothers, two older, one younger. So I feel like for them, stuff never stopped. I mean, it probably still doesn't stop. Um, Brothers and I all grew up athletes. They're going here, there, games here, practice here. Just feel like kind of like a a head down worker mentality. And I feel like that just passed right down along to me and my brothers. So yeah, yeah, just felt like if I didn't do it then, I wasn't going to do it at all once I got a little bit older. So there wasn't a better time to do it then. Yeah. When I was younger, a little less responsibility, you know, so. Yeah, but a lot of good lessons in there in terms of the path, like when, when you see it and, and you know it and you love it, you go after it. So mm-hmm. um, kind of love hearing that. Okay, I one of the more recent times, I would say, that I got my ass handed to me was in a phone call because <laughs> there's so many of them. I was on a phone call with um, an athlete and Dr. Myers who founded the Vincera Institute, and I yep. said something dumb like, um, hey, Dr. Myers, you know, I know you're one of the one of the guys who really founded uh, sports hernia surgeries. And he's like, oh, let me cut, cut you off right there. <laughs> and I don't think I said another word for the next 35 minutes. And he went to educate me that that is not what we call it. It is yes. called a core muscle injury. So tell me he is correct. Of course, he's correct. So, <laughs> so Zach, tell me about where did the word sports hernia come from and why do we now live in this core muscle injury world? Yeah, so it's funny. I mean, I don't know if Dr. Myers told you, but he's he's part to blame for that. So he shouldn't have no, cut you up didn't. that hard. Thank you. Where were you? Why were you? So yeah, I, I should have been there to help you out. But um, no, I mean, um, you know, early on, Dr. Myers and in, in studying this this anatomy and, and this phenomenon and this injury, um, I think you know when you think basic anatomy, uh, a lot of athletes had it of or relating to pain at the pubic level. So athletic pubalgia came to be. Mm-hmm. Um, not really, you know, too much of a crazy definition there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I think more commonly, uh, you know, it was used as sports hernia for folks that, you know, maybe didn't understand the whole anatomical or, or medical side of things. So that was being thrown around as, uh, you know, a nomenclature and, and word and phrase that, that I think more people can understand, more lay people. Mm-hmm. And it really came to grow its popularity and exposure to this type of injury. So I think it hanged on and latched on for people for a while. But you come to find out when you look at the basic anatomy, you know, there's not really a hernia going on there. Um, yeah. There's no protrusion. There, there's a weakening of the abdominal wall for sure, but it's mainly related to actual tearing and damage of the muscle. So Dr. Myers and, and you know his team, they worked to hopefully redefine that because I think it was giving a false pretense of what the injury was and how to treat it. You know, it's not only athletes that get it. It's it's laborers. It's blue collar people. It's uh, you know an everyday recreational individual that might not be characterized as a full-on athlete but just stays active and exercises so i think they wanted to work to kind of rename and and build a little bit more of a uh, awareness to other providers out there that listen this doesn't have to be reserved for an nfl athlete or you know guy that's playing ice hockey or somebody that's playing in the mlb at a high level it could be anyone Mm -hmm. so they came to redefine it as a core muscle injury which pretty much defines everything from that lower part of the rib right down to the knee um, you think structurally, you got your spine, you got your hip joints, and then muscle-wise, you got everything in between from muscles, ligaments, and tendons that play a role in defining someone's core muscle injury. So, so I love that Dr. Myers went from a poor definition of sports hernia <laughs> to a, 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 this, a title, core muscle injury, which, by the way, in a study published by Dr. Myers, he defines it as... A core muscle injury refers to damage to any skeletal muscle within the area between the chest and the mid-thigh. Yeah. Dude, that's... Yeah, more that's, than 75% of the body. That's everything. <laughs> so thank you very much. Yeah, it's great. It, it, it's great. Okay, so because it's so broad, um, tell me what these things usually look like to you. Yeah, How do they yeah. present? Uh-huh. Um, usually we're not... We can be, but we're typically not when somebody comes to our institute, the first ones to be seeing them. Mm-hmm. Um, but for, you know, downstairs, our physician's offices or someone that might come in off the street to us that says they have, uh, you know, maybe hip flexor strain or, you know, I've just been having this diffuse pain in my adductors. When, when we're examining them and they're examining downstairs, someone that comes in acutely, you know, it could be tons of pain, obviously on palpation, um, with certain activities, predominantly anytime you're flexing or activating, let's say, uh, you know, the core area or the, the abdomen. And then same thing with those adductor or groin muscles. So I think kicking athlete, think running, twisting, pivoting athletes, they get tons of pain with their 
simple activities or training. So in addition to anywhere. that, it could be anywhere. It's it, it could be yeah front of hip adductor. You said lower abdominal, and mm -hmm. th they just have pain. And so now you're starting to if they haven't done their homework and they're not in Vincera because they think they have this core muscle injury, then. Mm -hmm you haven't really narrowed much down, right? That could be a lot of things. That could be adductor strain. That could be hip flexor strain. That could be... So, so how do we start saying, no, 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 this is CMI. Do you call it that, first of all? We do. We like to okay, okay. that way. <laughs> this, 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 isn't, um, this isn't hip flexor tendinitis. This is CMI. Let's escalate it. How do you determine that? Yeah, so as a PT, what we do is we pretty much just look at our basic anatomy. So, you know, let's look at muscle action. So, okay, hip flexor, are you going to get pain with resisted hip flexion? Are you going to get pain with passive, mm -hmm. you know, hip extension? So we usually look at three different things, uh, muscle length, muscle strength, and palpation. Usually if you have pain with two, if not three of them, then we're looking at probably something related to that muscle injury. Now, so we'll just pretty much work through them in some sort of uh, triage and in normalized fashion, kind of rule out in a way. So check the hip joints. Okay, it doesn't seem like it's impingement. Maybe impingement could be a role. You know, move on to the next thing. Let's check. You know, musculoskeletally, the uh, the other things that attach to that area. Okay, and hip flexors ruled out. Doesn't seem like it's some sort of hip flexor or quad strain. Doesn't seem like it's a snapping hip phenomenon. Okay, let's go on to maybe testing um, some resisted crunches, some resisted adduction, as well as some uh, some passive movements in those regards and. Usually it'll bring you to the fact that, okay, wow, that, that lights me up. You know, that gives me that pubic plate pain. Mm -hmm. And then we'll kind of, uh, we'll kind of dig from there, ask about their activities. Sometimes you get people that have this stuff with getting out of bed in the morning mm -hmm. or I have pain with activity, but then it kind of goes away afterwards, uh, particularly running or sometimes people are getting it with coughing and sneezing. Um, those are the things when you think about straining and bearing down at the abdomen that are really those hallmark signs and symptoms that we find lead to, uh, as you correctly called it, a CMI, CMI. <laughs> diagnosis. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So, um, tell me about pubic plate. Where is that? And what does that pain look and feel like? Yeah. So pubic plate, if you think about that, that hard wall, right kind of, um, above the genitals in the male or, or right in that vaginal area for a female, um, you got a couple of different attachment and connection points there. You've got your rectus abdominis, your obliques, and then from a more inferior perspective, you have those adductor muscles. So again, you know, as you're palpating, obviously a hard, firm structure, there'll be a degree of, I think, tenderness for anyone there, regardless of whether you have an injury or not, if you're knocking on it hard enough. Mm -hmm. um, for other people, they're lit up pretty good, someone that actually has a true CMI injury. Yeah. So, um, you know, we just work through some palpation there. Uh, then I, we kind of trace along the muscles that attach there. Just because you have a CMI does not necessarily mean you have pubic plate sensitivity or uh, issues at that pubic symphysis. It could be the muscles that are traveling there. So we'll look to just trace those, um, those muscles that originate there and attach there. And yeah, that's how we kind of diagnose and differentiate at that pubic plate level. Okay. So then tell me a difference because like you said, there's so much that attaches in there. Um, right. Mm -hmm. And so, um, you're, you're a soccer player. You, pull an adductor or you strain mm -hmm. a groin, if you will. Right. That doesn't mean you have a CMI. Right. And that, yeah. right. So, so mm -hmm. how do I make that call to say, this is a groin strain. I'm going to treat you with isometrics and eccentrics and that, that whole world that we've been trained to treat these strains with versus you got to go to Vincera and see Dr. Myers. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I think, Probably first and foremost, it should be treated as such. You know, from a physical therapy perspective, you're always going to look at low-grade strengthening, um, obvious modalities, soft tissue work, heat, ice, depending on what your philosophies are. You know, those things could be valuable in reducing inflammation and swelling. But I think most importantly, you need to look at their reactivity and their pain level. So, you know, in a short five to seven days, can they comfortably isometrically adduct? Can you progress them to the isotonics, the eccentrics, things like that? And if not, you know, you can't do that in the first week to two, then you might be looking at something that's a bit more serious. Um, imaging, obviously thrown around like crazy in different college settings and professional settings. So we do find that we get those people quicker mm -hmm. because they may use some sort of image and send it to us. And then we can help to kind of identify as, yeah, this seems like a little more than a, than a groin strain. Mm -hmm. Once you come down to us, we'll check it out a little bit more. 
But I think if you're just a, you know, a standard PT or somebody working in an outpatient clinic, high school athlete that comes to you, um, exactly like you mentioned, you got to treat it conservatively with isometrics, isotonics, decentrics, and you got to look at their pain reactivity. And if they can progressively get through those things, work themselves back to a higher level of function or some sort of jogging and sport related activities, then you're looking at a low level strain and it probably won't require our services. Mm-hmm. But if you can't get them past like a sticking point of simple isometrics, uh, you know, this just doesn't seem like it's responding to what I'm doing. Then I would find that uh, getting to us earlier rather than, than later is beneficial in your recovery overall. Yeah. Uh, you know, as I've seen these patients um, over the years, I think that resisted sit-up test is, is a major hallmark for me. That That's usually yeah. a predictor of, hey, there's something more sinister than an abdominal strain or, or adductor hip flexor. Maybe this is a, vin, uh, a CMI or a vincera need. Um, for whatever reason, but I I wouldn't say that's a million percent, right? Like I I would say like I've had people with resisted sit up work that have gotten back to really high level of sport, never having gone up to Philly. Um, and so I just wish, wish there was a better predictor, by the way, even imaging, like we'll get, like I recently had a, a a D one lacrosse player come to me with this, with these symptoms, uh, bad resisted sit up test, um, Mm -hmm. got an MRI. And kind of kind of looked pretty clean, and he did really well rehab, right? I've had patients come, um, struggle with rehab, had an MRI, and then go up to Philly, and they do another MRI, and they're like, no, 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 you ha- what? So please, Zach, that was a big lead up to what the hell is the that magic that, was. That, that happens in the MRI at Vincere Institute? Yeah, they- yeah, I think first and foremost, kind of like dialing back into what you were talking about earlier using that resisted sit-up test can be a, you know, a really good predictor in some instances. It can be a bad predictor in other instances. What we find in some of these low-level strains is that area is so highly vascularized. Hmm. So given that it's so highly vascularized, you do have a really good tendency to heal early and often. And a lot of times you can have someone that maybe has pain early on with that test, but is able to recover just nicely because, you know, of good PTs or of good care or you know, whatever it may or may not be because they get that good blood flow and they get that really good vascularization of the area for healing. But besides that, when you talk more imaging, um, you know, our MRI machine here, I think is quite different than others from what I've been told. Um, They have a higher magnetic resonance to it. So I think some maybe probably somewhere around like a one Tesla, something like that. Mm -hmm. Ours to my knowledge is around somewhere about a three. So it gets a cleaner, sharper image to be able to detect, you know, a true tear or a a true muscular injury at that, that pubic plate or or core muscle level. Mm -hmm. In addition to that, they can actually widen what they're seeing too. Um, Standard MRI machine might show pelvis, but it might not show more hip, might not show upwards of the rib area. Here we can kind of, uh, we can kind of draw up or curtail that image to actually be a little bit wider in nature. So then our, our surgeons, Dr. Myers and Dr. Poor, they get a, they get a bigger picture of the core from the ribs all the way down to the knee almost of, of what things look like and, and what they're identifying versus small snaps, small snapshots, excuse me, yeah. of different areas. So I feel like, you know, our MRI machine here just gives them a, uh, gives them a broader view and a bigger picture of what they're looking at is actually designed by Dr. Myers and, I believe a uh, radiologist affiliate with Thomas Jefferson University. So they, they built this thing to kind of actually really detect and, and look very closely at these core muscle injuries. So it helps in diagnosing and recognizing early signs or actual tears. Yeah, it gives, it gives you a clearer picture. Um, mm-hmm. that, that the 3T um, magnitude, I, I think that's becoming more commonplace. I think, yeah. uh, you know, because uh, we definitely have them down here in Baltimore. I think the a key is, and this is, this is a good case example, um, I got another lacrosse player from Penn State who has this, like, lower abdominal pain, comes to me from his college trainer. Um, and they hadn't done much. They hadn't done imaging. He's like, hey, I got to get the MRI before I come to you. Comes in with the MRI, 3T, um, from a privately owned radiologist locally, and there aren't many of them. So she's doing oh, wow. all she's doing all the reads, and if you look through her read, it's uh, patient reports pain in hip. The MRI is of the hip flexor, and it's of the hip joint, and so the read is unremarkable. 
The guy has a rip roaring resisted uh, sit up test. Um, He's got, you know, pain on palpation to lower abdominals. It is about the ability to to widen your scope of what's being viewed. But it's important in in some states where PTs have prescriptive abilities where they can say, go get an MRI. Or if you are buddies with the radiologist to say, here's what I am worried about. It's really important that you guide them to say, this isn't your standard hip. I'm looking Mm -hmm. for CMI. And I think that's 90% of it because that's going to be where they even focus their read. So there's some education or knowledge there as the PT who's seeing a ton of direct access. If you suspect core muscle injury, tell that radiologist, hey, this is what I'm looking for. I'm not worried about his labrum. Radiologist only knows what they know. They're not examining the patient. Mm-hmm. So I think there's, there's value there. Um, and so when they go up to Vancera, you better believe they're looking for a freaking CMI. Exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah, no doubt. Yeah, so you make a good point there. Um, you think PT-wise, right? Yeah. Someone comes in with, uh, let's just say, hip pain. Uh, you know, for just be that. Yep. Hip pain, center of the body, great. Things could be above, things could be below. You know, imagine your tunnel vision on their hip. You assess them, you're like, yeah, there's nothing here. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? But if you're not looking at those spinal levels above, you're not looking at the knee below, how are you really going to be able to tell what's going on to the patient? You I mean, hip joint may be great. Yep. Muscles around it may be great. But maybe they're a twisting and pivoting athlete. And, you know, they're getting some hip pain that's coming from the spine because they have poor, um, you know, pelvic and lumbar spine dissociation. You don't know that unless you look at everything above and below that chain. Yeah. So I think they take that approach in their imaging, which is, is standard of care. I think that's, that's what everyone should do in their practice. Yeah, I think that, that's, that's pretty cool. Um, and you better believe, like, the bigger radiology chains. There, I always describe it to patients, like, my cousin is a radiologist. He's not an MSK radiologist, but he's a radiologist. Dude mm-hmm. sits in a dark room all day with just with just images flashing in front of him and all he does is just write down what he sees there's no assessment right and he doesn't even he's not sure where to look except for here's what the doctor said he's looking for so there's value there's value there there's even value in just how you educate the patient like i think that's super important to say here's why i think what's going on here's the image i want you to get or here's what yeah i know the radiologist said it's clean but here's why they said it's clean here's what they didn't look at here's maybe why they have symptoms um, food for thought. Okay, so did did you know how to treat this stuff before you got to Vincera? No, as a student, no. I mean, this was touched on briefly yeah. in my education at Newman. Um, they do a really good job of musculoskeletal treatments, pathologies, injuries, things like that at, at Newman University and manual therapy, all of that. I mean, we cover a really wide range of injuries, but Truth be told, I knew it as a sports hernia before I started here. Don't um, you think Myers is listening to this? Do not he say he could he think, could he could think. <laughs> he's yes, always listening like to this place. <laughs> but um, no, truthfully, it was it was the education and the uh, you know the tutelage of the PTs here as a student that really taught me how to treat this and you know how to look at multiple systems, multiple areas, and just you know they showed me how you know God, it's the whole freaking body. Mm-hmm. It really is. I mean, you, you described it already, and we describe it on our website. Dr. Myers talks about it at all these different uh, different talks and things like that and summit meetings and, you know, ribs to knees. When you think about that, that is you're treating the entire body. You're treating the spinal column. You're treating the core and the abdominal region. You're treating the hip joints. You're treating everything from those glute muscles to the quads to the adductors. I mean, you're treating every chain, every sling in the body, and it's – I mean, God, you could, you, you could treat it in so many different ways. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's fun to treat because you can be different with everything and so many different approaches and exercises and modifications. And it's a blast, but no, I did not know how to treat it fully <laughs> until I came here. Yeah, it's cool and complex. Okay, but, but now that you know a little bit about how to treat it, since there's so much going on, dumb it down a little bit for – us morons that are yeah. experts on this and, and just tell me what, what would your approach be to treating this patient non-op? What, what's, okay. what, like, what are, what are some of the lowest hanging fruit that you can say, you got to hit this to get this patient better without surgery? 
Yeah, yeah, absolutely. We get tons of people that I, I think a lot of people know us for our operative skills and experience, of course, not mine personally, but the institutes. You're not um, good at operating. Exactly. No, don't trust me to do that. <laughs> My God, you would be in a very bad place if you're trusting yeah. me to do that. But um, we get tons of conservative patients come yep. to our institute here and imaged, you know, examined by, by the gang downstairs and they pass them up to us. And they're like, mm -hmm. listen, no true injury here or, or small injury. We just don't think it's worth operating on. Healing should be good. I think they just need a really strong foundational core strengthening program or, you know, education and knowledge of what they're dealing with. So for me, someone who's um, non-operative, more conservative approach, I'm looking a lot at those foundational movements. A lot of people can tighten their core, but not a lot of people can activate that transverse abdominis. Mm -hmm. uh, rectus is usually pretty darn good in these people that aren't getting surgery, but actually recruiting those obliques and the anterior sling of the the core and looking at those deeper layers like that transverse abdominis, they, they can't. I mean, I've had tons of different college and professional athletes come up to me and we're spending like 10 minutes on a TA contraction. Okay, so how do you teach that? Yeah, I mean, lots of different ways. I use um, some verbal imagery and things like that and trying to teach them, listen, it's not about bracing or straining or holding your breath. It's about these lower, deeper muscles on those inner sides of those hips. So I start off pretty basic, hook line position, trying to get that TA to fire in that position. Once we get that, then I work them through some progressions. Uh, let's go quadruped next. Less degrees uh, or less more degrees of freedom to work about, less external aid to actually have it firing. Okay. Taking it from there and then superimposing some activities on top of it. Once they can kind of master that, okay, then we're looking at trying this thing standing. But if they can't get beyond doing that with the support of the mat and hook lying, supine, mm -hmm. you know, we can't get beyond that. Yep. You know, we need to bring out maybe something like a blood pressure cuff, mm -hmm. using that at that lower part of the spine and really giving them that, that visual feedback of the sphygmometer and Okay, great. Now you're recruiting those muscles. I don't want you to feel the six pack. You know, I want you to feel the ones beside it and slightly deeper. So it takes time and patience. Yeah. And, and certainly so patience. Are you and, and give me some pearls there because I've I've seen therapists, I have struggled personally with educating patients on finding um, transversus. Mm -hmm. Where are you telling them to put their hands? How do they know when it's properly activated? Are you doing the palpation first? Walk me through that. Yeah, yeah, as a provider, I'm definitely looking first, making sure I'm getting what I want, you know, not overactive in the rectus and good activation in that transverse abdominis. And then I would follow up with them because I'm not going to be with them when mm -hmm. they're at home or when they fly back to work with their ATCs or private trainers or PTs. So I, w I want them as a patient to know what to feel too. Okay. Uh, Education is half the battle. You know, they got to know what they're doing and they got to buy into it. Yep. So they see the value in it. For me, I like to... Uh, you know, think basic landmarks and anatomy first. Get yourself on those iliac crests, come in an inch or two, kind of roll in, press slightly deeper. All right. To activate it, we're going to look for a rounding of those muscles underneath your fingertips. And I tend to use a slight pelvic tilt. So I'll tell people I want you to act like you have a tail that you're trying to tuck between your legs. And a lot of times they get that tilt perfectly going and they get that TA working. Okay. Um, I think that the crunches, the, the people that focus on the, the breath holding, they tend to activate way too much diaphragmatic, diaphragmatic compensations yeah. as well as um, rectus abdominis compensations. Yep. So I try and use a little bit more of that pelvic dissociation to get a firing, and I find a lot of success with that. Okay, so you get tell me why you're giving them a little bit of that pelvic tilt. I give them a little bit of that because we like them to be in neutral. Okay. Really, and, and a lot of these athletes, I understand, when they go back to training and they go back to their sport, they're mm -hmm. probably going to be adopting that anterior tilt. Yeah. It's, you know, it's, it's a given. I mean, to be a defensive back in the NFL, you're in a ready position. Yep. You know what I mean? Butts out, out, chest is up. Yeah. It's the position you're in. Yeah. But for me, I find that it's much easier to get somebody into neutral to activate those muscles. Because when you, when you think about an anterior pelvic tilt, what you're doing is you're lengthening that abdominal region. And you're tightening those paraspinals in the low back. Mm -hmm. So when you're in too much of an anterior pelvic tilt, you're actually shutting down that anterior chain. And you're inhibiting those abdominal muscles from working. You know, are you firing maybe some other muscles that can be valuable, like quads, a little bit of glutes? Yeah. But you're actually creating a bit more of an impinged hip position and tilting that pelvis forward, making it tougher to actually fire that abdominal region. 
Now, see, I, I think that's a great visual to understand. Like when you're falling <laughs> into that tilt, that that anterior line is being elongated, right? Mm -hmm. and, and thereby, most likely, as muscles tend to do, when they're too long, they are not in an advantageous position to function appropriately. And so Absolutely. by getting them a little bit in that posterior roll or tuck, you're putting the anterior line in a better position to function. Does mm -hmm. that make sense? Okay. So, Absolutely correct. <laughs> dude, I've been doing this a long time, and that was actually <laughs> your, your description of that was was really clarifying to me. So I appreciate um, that. Yeah, no, I appreciate it. So um, you give them that. It, it sounds like uh, there's a lot of art there, less science. Like you don't know how much they're tilting. You don't know, but just so yeah. they can feel it, right? Okay. Um, exactly. And then how do you progress that exercise? They find it. They feel it. How do you how do you make a given without changing position? Are you mm -hmm. adding any resistance? Is it just time? Yeah, um, isometric hold times, I think one phenomenal way to do it. Um, I will sometimes incorporate some breathing. So if we're looking for isometric hold time, okay, great, let's go through, you know, maybe five deep breathing techniques or, or you know, a couple of diaphragmatic breaths. Let's see if you can hold that while you're doing that. Mm -hmm. So a little bit more dual tasking in that area. But I tend to, if someone can do it pretty well and it's not taking so long, you know, five, 10 minutes to get it. I'll usually bring them right into some sort of lower body movement. So, okay, let's, uh, without doing a full on dead bug or anything like that, let's look at maybe a bent knee fallout. Can you control it when you're then introducing some sort of hip mobility? You know, can you do some sort of heel slide with it? Can you control that TA contraction when we're getting hip flexion work? And uh, I'll progress them that way and then usually work through to, you know, some standard progressions of dead bugs. Then I'll get them into quadruped, as I mentioned earlier, work through some progressions of isometric holding there with breathing into bird dogs. And then really it just runs the gamut and standing with tons of different anti-rotation and uh, introductions of resistance in multiple different directions or certain pressing type of exercises, stuff like that. Okay. So when, when do you start introducing adductor? In somebody that's, we're talking conservative still. Yep. Okay. Um, I introduced that pretty early on. Okay. So, um, they come up to me, it's an evaluation. I'm introducing some sort of adduction load already. Okay. So if they can get that TA to work, okay, let's go over an isometric block squeeze. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, we talked bent knee fallout. That was just kind of one exercise of, of a million you could give. You could give isometric hip adduction or abduction. You could give short and long lever hip adduction. I try and just kind of bulletproof that whole area. Um, glutes are, are important as are adductors. Um, and someone who has a conservative case, I just find that adductors are a little weaker than they should be. Sure. So uh, I do try and introduce that a little sooner than, than abductor or other glute activity. Okay. What do you do with these freak athletes that you get to treat that laugh at this stuff? Like, dude, how, how is this going to help me? Yeah. And, you know, I'm not, I'm not even, I'm not moving any weight. How, how do you get by in there? Yeah, I think uh, a lot of times the buy-in happens automatically because they can't activate that TA like we talked yeah. about. And they get frustrated. I mean, athletes, you, me, anyone who's a professional um, doesn't have to be an athlete. Somebody who just takes a task or a job seriously and wants to accomplishment, they get like addicted to trying to get that TA to fire. Mm -hmm. So a lot of times I'll get the buy-in immediately, uh, especially from those athletes that are programmed to just be the best at everything and understand everything and get to the next step. But I tell them like, listen, guys, hold on. That, that did follow me, but that's okay. Sorry, but so, I'll have to blame my wife on that one. No, you're good. <laughs> Don't blame anyway, picking up where I left off. Yeah. No, I won't blame her. She deserves that. <laughs> good. Um, I, I'll kind of hang in front of them as like, listen, guys, you want to get to the stuff that means something. We got to accomplish these basics first. And then, you know, when they get to the basics of the, the lying down stuff and the quadruped stuff, you can always make it more engaging cognitively for them. So you're doing something standing, add some sort of sport related task with them, add some sort of, you know, cognitive counting task or color identification task, anything that's really going to challenge them in a dual tasking way. doesn't need to be as simple as, okay, you got this. Now we have to do it single leg. Okay. Once you accomplish it, single leg, we'll do it with mm -hmm. single leg with a ball toss. It's, mm -hmm. you know, you, you can do something single leg and add that, that cognitive motor and, and there's other types of tasks that are a little bit more engaging for the individual. 
So I tend to do that early and often for people too. Rehab shouldn't be boring. It shouldn't be one dimensional. It should include yeah. all those things. Yeah, so. that, that, that's really good advice. Um, when do you start moving? I know you, you kind of walked me to standing up. When do you start uh -huh. thinking frontal plane control? Um, when do you start thinking about incorporating rotation? How do you know you're ready for those things? Yeah, yeah, I look at movement quality a lot. Um, I think sagittal and frontal plane first, of course. Um, I think it's easier for most people to move in a sagittal plane, so I tend to start there. Um, when you're looking at standing activities and you're looking at, you know, maybe a standard squat or a standard lunge or hip hinging, things like that, I, I like to start there. I think those movement patterns and qualities, they resonate and mean more to somebody. Athletes and not, they tend to move better in those positions. And then I'll work frontal plane after that. So if I see that their sagittal plane, um, stability looks great, you know, uh, movement pattern and, and movement quality looks great. I'll tend to move them into frontal plane before I even give load in sagittal plane. Cause I think that that's just as paramount being able to get movement quality, um, stability in those frontal planes at, at a body weight level. And then I'll start to introduce loads in both of those planes. Again, once I find that they've mastered that stuff, uh, movement quality looks good. I'm getting effective strain. Muscle activity upon palpation is good. They can do these things without a mirror. You know, can they control their body without that external aid and feedback? Great. Mm -hmm. Then I'm mixing in those transverse plane rotational patterns in the same fashion. Let's look at movement quality and pattern first. Okay, then we'll introduce load. So that, that's the way I work as a PT. I, I think everyone's probably a little different. Yeah. Um, some people kind of like to throw things out there, see what sticks, and then maybe stick to that and then progress them to the other stuff. I try and exhaust kind of all options in each plane and make sure they can understand and really move these patterns before I'm rushing them to that next stage and next level. Yeah. Uh, I think that makes a lot of sense. I think that's, that's well thought out and formulaic. So, mm -hmm. so that's a great way to approach it. I would say, um, what do you think the biggest misconception is concerning CMI? Uh, I don't know. I truly don't know. I'd say that, there's a lot of things that can be overlooked. Um, I think there's some misconceptions out there in the general treatment of it that it cannot be a real injury to some people. Yeah. Um, I think some people view it as maybe like a last resort. Like I got this athlete, I don't know what's going on. He's still got pain. Maybe it's core muscle. Um, whereas other people are like, oh God, these symptoms are jumping out. It's definitely core muscle. So I think there could be a misconception of it's a, kind of a treatment of last resort. Um, there's a lot of research out there. There's a lot of evidence out there. There's a lot of athletes out there that have had this surgery and are playing and have returned to a high level because of the surgery yeah. or even the treatment of these people conservatively. So I feel like that could be a huge misconception. Um, if we're talking uh, people that are overlooking certain things in the rehab, that, that's probably a whole different, that's probably a whole different discussion, things that I think are commonly missed. But as far as misconceptions go, I feel like that could be it. Tell me what, tell me what we're commonly missing. Yeah, I'm, I think your folks I've had great conversations with, and they're picking up on a lot of things that I am, which is awesome to see. Well, a lot of other geniuses. trainers, PT, yeah, I mean, they must have learned from you. Yeah, <laughs> they learned from Tim Stone. <laughs> okay, even better. Yeah, exactly. But um, I think some of these folks, maybe people that aren't as educated as I once was in the treatment of this, they're not treating above and below the pelvis as much as they should. I think they're looking mainly at, okay, we got to treat the core. Got to give modified crunches. Got to give these six-pack exercises. Glutes are important. Got to hit glutes. Great. I get tons of people that come to me. And, uh, you know, maybe they're out of town and they come back for a follow-up visit at week two or three. And I'm trying to get an idea of where they've been, what they've been doing. And I'll ask, you know, have you been naming a lot, a lot of good things? Have you done any anti-rotation or rotational strengthening? No, I don't think so. Name a couple exercises. No, I don't even know what they are. Um, same thing with adductor strengthening. Yeah. You know, we, we had you here for a adductor repair. Are you doing any groin strengthening? Isometric stuff. I've been squeezing the blocks. You told me the day after surgery. I'm like, okay, did they build on that? Mm -hmm. No, they haven't. You know I mean? And for me and for anyone else, um, you know, the other PT here, Kara and, and other folks out there that are treating this injury, that can be frustrating because, you know, at that point, someone comes to you two, three weeks, they should be further beyond that. You know, the isometric stuff should be 
somewhat in the rear view, or at least progressed upon. I mean, we should be working isotonics at that point. We should be working concentrics. We should be getting this adductor firing through its range of motion. Yeah. Um, be like treating a bicep strain, but never actually having someone lengthen and strengthen their bicep at the same time. Yeah. So I feel like those are the biggest missed things. People, they know it's an adductor repair, but they don't strengthen them. I don't get it. I'm yeah. like, the answer's in the diagnosis. I think people are scared. Uh, yeah, I think people don't yeah. know. And, and um, I think as a guy who's pissed off Dr. Myers, they just don't want to piss off Dr. Myers. That's true. So, so they don't want to touch it. But um, that, that's, yeah, but that's really good feedback. So, so if you're listening and you get um, a core muscle repair, think about what is weak, strengthen it, think about what is tight and stretch it. It's, yeah. it's no different, right? Like th those yeah. are the basics of what we do. Um, okay, let's get a little bit towards surgical because I think mm -hmm. that, that kind of like we were just touching on, that does freak a lot of people out. It does. W what does he do in there? <laughs> he, I mean, anyone who's listening that has met Dr. Myers or listened to anything that he talks about, he uses a great analogy of a baseball. So just to make this easier for everybody out there and, and yourself, if you haven't heard this before, if you can imagine that pubic plate like a baseball, inner layer of that baseball, nice and hard, firm, outer layer of it, surrounded by leather, stitching, all of that. Um, imagine the baseball of that pubic plate. Imagine the leather surrounding it is that fibrocartilage lining of that pubic plate and that bone. And then any stitching would be muscles that are kind of coming down and attaching to it. So what Dr. Myers does during that surgery is, you know, he'll check that pubic plate, make sure that fibrocartilage lining is fastened. And then from there, he'll look and identify the muscles that are torn. Uh, you know, say we're looking at rectus abdominis, uh, a couple of the adductor muscles. He'll then actually somewhat peel back those layers, find those healthy attachment points of the muscle, and he'll pull them back up and refasten them to that fibrocartilage layer of the pubic plate. Stitch them there. You know, figure out if he needs to reduce any restrictions in scar tissue, maybe some heterotropic bone ossification. Take that all out. Maybe shoot some sort of corticosteroid injection in there to help with some inflammation. Hmm. Stitch them back up internally, and then they're yeah, they're done. Stereo strips on, gauze reinforced with some tegaderm and all, and that's the repair. And, that's and there's some other things that he does. Um, you know for kind of dumbing it down for some people and making it make sense. That's, that's really what it is at a, um, at a, at a smaller level and, uh, you know, more of a simpler understanding and form of it. Yeah. Well, I, I appreciate that. Um, here are the things that I've seen in post-op notes that freak uh -huh. me out. Ready? Yeah. Let me hear one. What's an adductor release? What's he doing? So adductor I'm release. Picturing, I'm picturing an adductor like flapping in the wind. What's actually happening? So what he's actually doing is he's creating little cuts in that muscle because what you think about is that tug of war, right? So what you can have, while one may be torn in regards to that connection between the rectus and the abdominal muscles, you know, one can be tight, trying to do more work. So if you think adductor release, he's just giving a little bit of length to maybe one of the adductors that isn't torn but maybe overly tightened and, and trying to do too much of the work. Mm -hmm. So that's pretty much what that is there. So he's just making some small some small cuts in that muscle to give a little more length of it. Okay. What else you hear? That's good. Um, <laughs> that freaked me out. Pelvic floor repair. I, I personally get nervous when I hear the words pelvic floor, but when you talk about repairing a pelvic floor, that's something I yeah. don't want to mess up. What does that mean, Zach? Yeah. So if you just think about the pelvic floor being supported by almost like a sling or a hammock of muscles, he's pretty much just repairing those muscles. It's really no different from the adductor muscles. It's just a, it's just how they support that pelvic floor area. So he's just speaking to anatomy there. So pelvic floor repair, meaning the muscles that are helping to support the, the pelvic floor. Okay, so he's suturing them back to what? The pelvis? He's putting them back on that, that pelvic plate, yes. So you have that nice attachment point and that control of your pelvis. <laughs> Okay, over your pelvis. Yeah. Um, okay, so those are those are the two, I'd say, um, big things. He, he uses the word reinforce a lot. Uh, I've. Mm -hmm. do, you, do you know what's going on surgically there when he'll talk about reinforcing rectus? 
Yeah, not to speak too much for him, but I have to imagine that in his notes, he's just referring to um, refastening or stitching the actual muscle attachment to its origin. So when you think about the tears, what happens is you can have full-on avulsions where that whole muscle is torn off, or you can have partial tears that he's identifying. So when he's saying reinforcing, he's taking anything from those small tears to the large avulsion tears, and he's pulling the, the healthier layers of the muscle and tissue back down to the pubic plate and refastening them to that fibrocartilage outer lining. Okay, super right. helpful. Um, mm-hmm. And then, okay, so this patient wakes up, and they were told that they have a core muscle repair. And mm-hmm. from what I understand, Vincera loves early yoga. Love it. Love it. Love it. Early yoga and PT. I mean, they do both in the same day. Awesome. So walk me through the life of um, this athlete that just opens his eyes. When are they doing yoga? What exactly transpires in that yoga studio? And then what happens with Dr. Zach Giuliano with that first visit? Yeah, definitely. So day zero, uh, wake up, recover in our post-operative care room downstairs. Sometimes, depending on the athlete, um, you know, what sport they may have, what sport they may play, I apologize, what insurance they may have, we actually take them up day of surgery. So I'll get an evaluation in, obviously then with somebody else, given that they're a bit under the influence there. And we go over simple mobility skills. It's pretty much like an acute level of L. Can they walk? Can they get in and out of bed safely? Can they get up and downstairs? Um, do they know what to expect tomorrow? Give them a little bit of ice. They'll control some of the inflammation. Send them on their way. For a large majority of people, we may not see them till that first day post-op. So they walk in that day likely hunched over, likely not knowing what to expect, scared of PT, scared of the fact that they have yoga. Right. And it begins with just some simple mobility, some walking, some sidestepping, some backwards walking really just introducing them to movement patterns that are important for their everyday life. From there, we have a list of usually table exercises that we go over. Again, let's find transgressive dominance. Let's activate it. And then let's build on it from there. Um, Let's try and activate hip adductors. Let's try and activate abductors. Let's try and activate anything related to the glutes. Mm -hmm. Really, the first day and the first, we'll say five to six, depending on patient tolerance, is all about activation. We're not overly concerned with strength building. So for me, I stress that with a lot of folks because they're going to have pain. And a lot of the exercises I give them, seeing as though they're an athlete, they want to do to fullest capacity and fullest capabilities. I place a block between their knees. They want to bust that thing in half. So it's on me to tell them, listen, I want activation. I'm not looking for strength building. Can we wake these muscles up? Can we turn them on? That's all I care about. So we'll go through... Short and long lever adduction in isometric form. We'll go over clamshells, sideline hip adduction, abduction, I apologize, bridging, um, transverse abdominus or abdominal bracing. And that's pretty much it aside from the standing functional exercises. And that's all day one. And then beyond that, if these folks, you know, professional college level athlete, even the high school ones, they'll then go to yoga. So our yoga instructor, Biz, she's, she's phenomenal. I mean, you got, you got to get her on your podcast next. She would have a million things to talk about. She's been doing this forever. She works with tons of professional teams, Eagles, tons of different athletes in this Philly area. And a lot of yoga is again, finding body awareness, finding ability to activate, uh, putting them in different positions to find this activation, putting them in different positions to be able to understand movement quality, the body awareness I talked about and to be able to help manage that pain and move in a, a way that could be a bit more free without actually overstretching anything early on. Yeah. And um, that's all in about PT is about an hour. Yoga is about 45. Yeah. It's a lot, about a two hour morning that they're with us. That's amazing. Yeah. Um, what are they, what are their restrictions? Early on, we don't like them to over in the area. We don't like them to brace Um, we want them tightening muscles, but we don't want them to excessively bear down or perform things like Valsalva maneuvers or, uh, you know, deep flexion, deep flexion of the trunk. So we avoid sit-ups, teach them a log rolling technique, for instance, getting in and out of bed or on and off our tables for, for easier movements. Beyond that, infection prevention and control, we don't like them to soak the area. They can shower, but we don't want them in pools, hot tubs, oceans, 
Um, really nothing crazy beyond that. I mean, obviously you're not going to lift anything heavier beyond uh, 10 pounds. You're not going to jog in the first day or week that will come after that. Yeah. But we keep it pretty simple to lifting and straining restrictions and then the infection prevention control restrictions of soaking and stuff like that. Um, hip extension, hip internal rotation, any, any restrictions there from range? Not really. No, no. We, we actually like to get them in those positions early and often for gentle stretching. But that being said, we don't like to overly lengthen without the stability part. It wouldn't be in someone's best nature or interest to get someone into hip extension if it means they have an excessive lordosis or anterior pelvic tilt. Again, it's just going to shut down the abdominal wall and shut down that whole anterior sling of stability. So yeah. we usually avoid that. As far as internal and external rotation go, I like to stabilize people in those positions. I like to have them find the awareness of that that movement pattern at the hip and, and really isolate and fire those rotators. Yeah. Um... Okay, what are what are some secrets if you're getting this patient very early post op? You're not a Vincera, right? Yep. What are some secrets that you have seen predict to an outstanding outcome down the road? Yeah, following the protocols. One, uh, yeah. we give people a, you may have seen it a pretty detailed packet. Yep. And we we try and make it simple. We understand this is not widely seen. We understand it's not widely treated. Mm-hmm. So we we really list things week by week. Uh, day one to seven, day eight to 14, day 15 to 21, so on and so forth. And we give sample exercises. So following that plan and giving variety based upon that plan Mm -hmm. usually is a really good indicator of someone's success. Beyond that, you know, you're a PT with a good cerebral mind, think foundational postures. I feel like quadruped is skipped a lot. Getting people on all fours, really, you know, finding and spending the time in that first week to build awareness in that position. Mm-hmm. It shouldn't always be soup on your sideline. Yeah. So I find that those are those are really important things to do. They give people a lot of success early on because they find that body awareness and they they find great ways to activate and stabilize themselves through their spine and and through that that uh, anterior core portion. Yeah. And then jogging. People may not want to hear this. Jogging early on is key. When I'm talking early on, I'm talking like day ten to fourteen. Okay, you want them jogging. I want them. Interval jogging. I should clarify that. Interval so, jogging. Define a jog. How's that? Jog 20 yards. I tell people, imagine like someone's letting you cross the street. Okay. That's and you're cool. hustling up to get across yeah. the street, but you're not actually running. Yeah. That's the yeah. best way I can describe it. It's like a 50% Why? effort. Why is that so important? It gives them that really good stretch in a transverse plane. We're not looking to over lengthen or overstretch. It's giving them what I usually characterized as a functional stretch. Mm -hmm. A lot of times people that are jogging less tend to build more scar tissue. They tend to have more difficulty getting back to jogging if they're waiting three, four weeks to do it. Mm -hmm. Same thing with kicking, you know, soccer athletes, they have a tougher time getting back to kicking it. Mm -hmm. Weeks three and four, if they haven't been jogging early, it really provides just a nice gentle lengthening and slight firing of the muscle in those I don't want to say over lengthened position, but you know, somewhat lengthened position. It it really works that length tension ratio of the muscle. Yeah. So yeah. it really helps with turning turning on adductors and making sure they're not getting overly tight to the point where you can't fire them. Yeah. Um, same thing goes for those abdominal muscles and the the other structures in the the anterior wall of the core. Yeah. I think that makes a lot of sense. That's really good. First of all, I love the cue of crossing the street, but but also why it's important. I work with yeah. a lot of NFL specialists who end up going through the Vincero world um, because they're always at this end range of punting, right, or field goal uh-huh. kicking. Um, uh-huh. And so they get they get a very broad or, or very rapid, I should say, return to sport. Like a lot of them come out saying six weeks, he said, I'm, I'm ready to go, right? So what, how often are you seeing that six-week mark hit? And what causes it to take longer? Because I've definitely seen it take longer. Oh, absolutely. I do always give people the caveat of this is a six-week protocol, meaning the fastest it moves is six weeks. Yeah. Uh, do not expect to accelerate it much beyond what we've given you, but potentially expect to take it longer. I usually give people six to ten weeks as a range just to not get their hopes up. Okay. Um, kind of under-promise, over-deliver sort of yeah. methodology there and, and yeah. theory. 
Um, I've seen plenty of athletes return at that six-week mark. My goal for high school, college, and professional athletes is usually some sort of instructional practice with their team at week four, more participation in organized practice at week five, return to some sort of game and competition by week six. Now, there are a million other things that can happen along the way that delay that, but that's my personal goal that I've had success with. People expect to not be involved in these things. Week six hits, go on the field and do something. I just think that's unrealistic. Mm -hmm. There needs to be this graded progression and graded introduction to sport-specific drills, uh, positional-specific drills at their sport. Um, you know, how a cornerback plays versus a running back is going to be totally different. Yeah. Same sport, totally different movement pattern, totally different goals, and, and totally different job on the field. Yeah. Um, I found that people that are trying to get back at six weeks that have maybe more scar tissue that breaks up early on, uh, things that result in maybe a little bit more reactivity to pain, have a more difficult time returning at that time frame. I've also found that people that come in longer, longer length of time from the initial injury, mm-hmm. again, could have a little bit of a delay. Yeah. You have someone that's on the field, complete avulsion fracture, comes in that week, gets surgery. They're actually going to be the best candidate to get back on the field by six weeks yeah. or ice or whatever surface they're playing on. Mm-hmm. Um, some of these people, unfortunately, you know, it's three, four years. I felt this in college. Now they're a five-time pro and <laughs> or yeah. five-year pro, and now they're getting it taken care of. They're yeah. going to have, unfortunately, a little more scar tissue that may have formed, a little more work during surgery, yeah. which could lead to a little bit more trauma to the area. No, I'm not saying all those people don't get back in six weeks and play, but to me, just a little bit of an indicator of, okay, we might have to take this a little bit slower in regards to getting you back on the field at full speed. But I've had tons of people that return at six weeks and they're still seeing PT. Yeah. So yeah, you can get out there and play, but you still might need maintenance and recovery and, and other strengthening from PT. It's just going to exist while you're playing. So, so, so that's something that I would love really, I guess, our sports medicine community to get better at, which is when we give these timelines, too often the, the patient or the athlete and the clinician think that it, they're done, right? So return to sports so in six weeks. And, and I've seen a ton of athletes uh, like uh, NFL and professional lacrosse get back to playing in this six, I usually say six to 12 weeks. Mm-hmm. Um, That's fair to say still. But, but yeah, but God knows they still have symptoms. Uh, they're probably better than pre-op, but they still have symptoms. And I think the more our community learns that, number one, the symptoms doesn't mean the surgery failed. And number two, the symptoms don't mean that you can't be on the field, but we build it in terms of the expectation. I think that'll go a long way to, to kind of get a better understanding of, to, the, to the patient and the therapist of what is actually transpiring. Um, I think we can do a better job of, of educating that. Um, yeah. So yeah, hundred percent. I have a kid that's uh, at Oklahoma, maybe going to be incoming freshman for Oklahoma basketball, Oklahoma baseball. I apologize. Nice. Contacted me just the other day. He's like, Hey man, headed to school. Things feel okay. I'm at that seven week mark. My PT told me I'm good. I'm discharged, but I'm still feeling some pain. Yeah. And you know, I just hear that way too often. You know, I, I've reached six to seven weeks. They discharged me. They said that I'm at the end of the protocol. That does yeah. not mean you're at the end of your rehab. So it's painful. It can be frustrating. Yeah, yeah. That, it can be I, think, I really think that is the delineation between physical therapy and sports physical therapy. Physical therapy follows that prescription, and mm-hmm. they're done thinking at week six. Sports physical therapy says, "How do I make these guys elite, guys and gals?" elite or better than pre-op now you made a great point of the ones that take longer are those that have dealt with it chronically i think it's actually a a movement pattern like how long does it take to fix the reasons they needed this surgery right and if they've built up years and years and experience of poor movement patterns you better believe it's going to take a really long time to fix those things. Again, we got to, as a sports rehab community, we got to educate our athletes on that. Hey, he's, he's putting a bandaid on it. We're going to work together to make sure it doesn't happen again. Or the reasons you had the surgery are mitigated. Yeah, no, I didn't even touch on that. That's a phenomenal point. These movement patterns that people build, they're strong freaking athletes. These guys and girls, they can move a lot of weight, but can they move it the right way? Sure. And, uh, and, un- and unwinding and untangling those movement patterns to get 
you know, paraspinals to not be as active and let's actually turn on glutes versus these low back structures can yep. take a while. Yep. And PT should continue to exist until they understand how to move correct again. Otherwise, this repair they've gotten might not withstand their, yeah. you know, 5, 10, 15 year career. So that's it. You that make a great it. point there. I'm happy to touch on that. Yeah, thanks. Um, okay, why is Graston such a no no <laughs> in the Vincera Institute? I mean, it's written all over our protocol. It's great. Um, I mentioned earlier, highly vascularized area, cupping, Graston, those tools. Unfortunately, they continue to bring blood flow to that area. And early on, a lot of times, we want blood flow for healing, of course, but they tend to just aggravate that level. So when you think muscles and you, and you think what attaches at that, that pubic plate region, mm -hmm. continuing to scrape and rub and, and aggravate that area tends to give people a little more discomfort when you're then trying to fire those muscles, yeah. which I know seems to be opposite to a lot of other theories and things that we do for rehab, you know, hamstring injury. We're going to scrape and cup the heck out of it and we're going to strengthen it and get it better. But uh, this area just seems to have you know such a higher vascular flow to it that tends to irritate and aggravate a little bit more. I think if we had to um, amend or update that protocol, I think it yeah. should just come with, like, don't be a dumbass. Like, exactly. Don't be a dumbass. Yeah. Don't go crazy with aggressive. It doesn't make sense to use aggressive tool really aggressively on no. a newly injured area. But it doesn't mean that grassin's going to ruin uh, or re-injure your core muscle. But No, no um, it does not. I've used it on uh, several different occasions. I know. Dr. Myers probably just heard that. Um, <laughs> am I using it over the area of the repair? Absolutely not. You know, I'm yep. using it maybe a little more distally to get a little bit more length in the muscle. Or maybe I'm using it on upper abdominals because they're complaining of this restriction or tightness. And I find it valuable in a lot of different ways. I just, to me, I did not write the protocol, but I'd imagine if we put in there that you could use it, there would be a large population of people using it inappropriately. So yeah. it's a lot easier to say, don't use it. And, um, these people reach out to us and have a good rationale of potentially wanting to use it and where they want to use it. Yeah. Dr. Myers and Dr. Poor are always open to, uh, to hearing that. Yeah. I'll tell you, I was, I'm super impressed with his, his communication. Um, it, it's really amazing. You know, like he's given every athlete a cell phone number. It's unbelievable. Yeah. Um, yeah. and, and like a, a quick plug for Zach Giuliano, so easy to communicate with and to collaborate with, uh, I, it sounds like it's it's just endemic to the to the Vincera Institute. So good on all you guys for doing. It. By the way, Jimmy McCrossin is that a guy who's still up there? No, no, Jimmy's no longer here. He had some uh, some affiliations early on in the institute when um, when the rehab side of things and the uh, the surgical side of things weren't as connected as they are now. Yeah. But um, Jimmy McCrossin has uh, has moved on from here, so no longer affiliated with the uh, the rehab or the institute. But great. Great individual and great individual, un unbelievable character in the uh, in the NHL world, and oh, well respected awesome. in Philadelphia for sure. Oh my god, and yeah. obviously down in Baltimore too, because just because of the level of communication. So if there's if there's only one thing that comes out, there's so many pearls that we covered, I think. But if there's one uh -huh. thing that comes out, it's how well are you building up that network and just communicating from a sense of humility. You clearly come from that ilk. Obviously, so does Dr. Myers and. And we've had nothing but awesome, awesome things to say about Vincera. So we, we've definitely appreciated kind of your outlook. I, I, I appreciate everything you taught me today. Um, I yeah. appreciate your time because um, I know no it's problem. limited and I know it's valuable. Um, tell the audience of the millions of sports PTs how they can find you. Yeah, so easily Google VinceraInstitute.com. Um, look us up. We have a rehab page on there. Different, uh, different pieces of information about the treatment, diagnosis of the injury, what we do here. Uh, you know, we are so easily accessible across the country. We get tons of people that are contacting us. Dr. Myers and Dr. Poor, they review imaging from people across the country, uh, people outside of the country. Um, it's crazy. I mean, we are accessible through, through phone, through email, through so many different, different forms of communication. We, we try and make it work for everyone. We understand not everyone can drive here. Yeah. Not everyone moves in that Philly area. Uh, Flying in, whatever it may be, we have, you know, we have tons of different patients from all over that come here. So, you know, don't hesitate to reach out to us. How do we find Phone you? numbers on the website. Me, personally. Yeah, that's who I want to ah. see. If I go up there, that's who I want to see. 
Yeah, I mean, I got my cell phone number that I give every one of my patients. Good, don't keep same that thing. Out. I have that. <laughs> I mean, email. Yeah, I got an email. So that's Z Giuliano, J U L I A N O, F and Sarah Institute dot com. Awesome. Um, uh, a wealth of knowledge. So uh, I feel far better equipped to treat core muscle injuries. Um, now, I, now I know what that means. So I, I, yeah. I appreciate your time. I appreciate the education. Um, I look forward to doing it again, Zach. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, you guys, your team, you've all been great. I've really enjoyed collaborating with everyone in the PTs that, that works for you guys that has seen this injury and talk through and communicate different ways and, and methods to, to getting their athletes back on the field or ice or whatever it may be. So I appreciate you having me. Yeah, man. All right. Looking all right, bud. To-